Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. All right, welcome. So today we have a guest. Russ is at the <laughs> at a conference. <laughs> you know, uh, let's just take a break there because I, I did read some stuff like I don't know how secretive they try to be. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Say that we're at the Mont Pelerin conference. So yeah. let's not do that. Just yeah, okay. I'll just say you're at a conference. Yeah, let's just okay. say yeah, right. let's just say I'm at a conference. And All right. Kind of leave it a little generic. <laughs> I'm not sure if they'd care or not, but I did read that somewhere in there. So Okay. No, they just don't like what the proceedings to be. The proceedings to be. Okay. So, you, so, so you think it's okay if we say you've okay been a member for a long time? Yeah, so. I think okay. it's okay. Okay. I guess the Mott Pellerin Society Conference in Dallas, Texas. I'll just let Jason cut that out. Texas, so. Russ is at the Mott Pellerin Society meeting in Dallas, Texas uh, this week. And he is sitting with uh, Randall G. Holcomb, uh, who's a, is DeVore Moe Professor of Economics at Florida State University. He received his PhD in economics from Virginia Tech and taught at Texas A&M University and at Auburn, Auburn University prior to coming to Florida State in 1988. All right, well, uh, I'm sitting here with Randy and uh, I was uh, fascinated by your talk that you gave, oh, what was it, about a month ago or so at, a, at another conference on this uh, book that you wrote called Political Capitalism, How Economic and Political Power is Made and Maintained. and uh, we have kind of a layman audience, so I'd like to keep our discussion kind of easy, easy going on the concepts of it, not get too econ jargony, like uh, some of your stuff with the Coase theorem. I mean, I, don't, I love Coase and the Coase theorem, but, you know, maybe not get too technical and kind of get to the, to the nuts and bolts of what it is. So maybe in a nutshell, uh, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what political capitalism is? Yeah, political capitalism is a political and economic system where profitability of business is determined more by political connections than by producing products that satisfy consumer desires. The, the political and economic elite conspire uh, for their mutual benefit. So capitalism is a, a system where we more or less cherish, cherish uh, individual property rights, right? And we, we kind of push that down to an individual level, so less government action or collective action and more, in, well, there's voluntary collective action, but less government influence forced action in, in the idea of capitalism. And so um, what makes your capitalism different than, let's say, cronyism, where my definition of cronyism is big business and big government playing kissy face with each other? <laughs> I think there's, uh, the, the two concepts are the same and the terms have been used, okay. uh, corporatism, President Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex. So that's the general idea. And in my book, uh, one of the things I start out saying is a lot of people recognize the problem. They see the mm -hmm. problem, but they don't understand what causes it. And that's what motivated me to write the book. So talk a little bit more about this elite class and how they could be in a position where they're so insulated that they're, they, they can really build walls up that keep them in power? Well, uh, when you think about the political process, you think about public policy, 
there are only a few people who actually make public policy. We have this, um, I don't even know if I should call it a myth of democracy, but we have this <laughs> idea that somehow through democratic political processes, ultimately the citizens are in charge of what the government does. Right. <clears throat> but if you think about that, it's a it, yeah. it can't a be that millions of people get together to make public policy. Yeah. It's only a few people, starting with our elected representatives, those are the elite, the political elite, who make public policy, and most people just have to abide by the policy they make. Do you think that the Trump election is somewhat of a anti-elite thing? I mean, I, I, it, to me, somewhat the elite class is what he got in over, so that was maybe one reflection of, of being able to overcome the power of some elite class, or, or is it just the opposite? Do you think Trump's in there with them? Well, I think Trump is in there with him, but he, that's not what he was running on. I right. mean, his right. idea was drain the swamp, let's yeah. let the people uh, have their say. So certainly he was running on a very populist uh, agenda. Right. But clearly Trump is, is among the elite, you know, among the economic elite for sure. You know, if you're a billionaire, yeah. you're, you're part of the elite and you're well connected. And that's the thing. There are a few people who are in the elite, the economic and political elite. They're well connected. They can bargain with each other. They make public policy. Most voters, really, they don't have a say. I mean, you can cast your vote, but your one vote isn't going to determine the outcome of an election. That seems to be a distinction that you have with it, is that they're, they're able to be in that marketplace, so to speak, of exchange from, the, from, from what I saw with some of your material you presented is that there is a political market and not all of us really get to participate in it, but they do. Right. Yeah, and so that's sure. the political exchange, political capitalism that we don't get into. Right. And we know that goes on all the time. I mean, the idea that legislators trade votes with each other, you vote for my program, I'll vote for your program. Everybody knows that goes on. Right. But ordinary voters like you and me, unless you're different from what I know, <laughs> ordinary voters like you and me, we can't engage in those kind of exchanges. And one result of that is we really don't have very much of an incentive to get, be informed. We don't have much of an right. incentive to be Yeah, informed. why don't you talk a little bit more on that with rational ignorance, which I think is something I've brought up on some other podcasts. But uh, what, what's, your, what's your definition of rational ignorance? Yeah, um, voters know that their one vote isn't going to affect the outcome of an election. So they don't have an incentive to become informed. Now, a lot of voters are informed. People become informed about politics the same way they become informed about sports. Yeah. I mean, your favorite sports team, whether you're a fan, isn't going to affect the outcome of the game. Some people like to collect up information on sports. Some people like to collect up information on politics. Right. But the point is that it doesn't do you personally any good. I mean, if you have good information about restaurants, that can affect the quality of your lunch. Right. But if you have good information about politics, it's not going to affect anything. Right. I mean, in the last presidential election, if you voted for President Trump, he'd be president today. But if you voted for Hillary Clinton, Trump would still be president. <laughs> right, right. And if you didn't vote at all, Trump would still be, be president. Yeah. When I bring this up in principles class, I like to tell the students that MTV has been lying to them for years and years. Is that... You know, they're, they're all about, oh, your vote counts and, you know, be a citizen. <laughs> and I just ask them how many, how many elections have been determined by one vote, you know. And uh, the, the only way you really have some sway is if you do get involved and maybe you're able to sway a number of votes through being a leader of some sort. And uh, 
in a political rally or regime or something. So yeah, but but even there, there's a discontinuity in political power that doesn't really exist with economic power. I mean, if you have twice as yeah. much money, you have twice the economic power. If you have twenty dollars, you have twice the economic power of somebody with ten. If you have ten million dollars, you have ten times the economic power of somebody with a million dollars. Yeah. And if you don't have very much economic power, you can get more. I mean, work overtime, uh, look for a better paying job, maybe take a second job, right. uh, work a little harder, and you can get a little more economic power. Yeah. But the same thing isn't true with political power. I mean, with political power, uh, let's say you have no political power, like I do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Okay, so I could volunteer to work for a candidate. I could donate money to a political campaign. But unless I'm a really big donor, in the end, I'm still going to have no say. I'm still going to have no political power. Yeah, yeah. I thought some of what you were saying with the uh, Marx and Engels stuff, that the evolution of uh, the progressive ideology leads to this. Is, am I right that you were saying something along those lines that the devolution, if you will, of into a political capitalism, the thing that we all say we don't really like, uh, we're big business and big government are too cozy with each other. You know, where does that come from? Or where, where are you seeing with that uh, progressive ideology? Yeah, the progressive ideology, what I refer to as progressive democracy, the ideology of progressive democracy, that's what enables political capitalism to, to exist. If you go back to the founding of the United States, the fundamental principle underlying American government was liberty. <clears throat> that the role of government is to protect the rights of individuals. And you read the Declaration of Independence. It's a list of grievances against the King of England. He's violated our rights in all mm -hmm. these different ways, compromised our liberty. Therefore, we have a right to form a new government that's going to protect our liberty. So the idea up through toward the end of the 1800s, that fundamental principle of American government was liberty, protecting individual rights. Yeah. And then... <clears throat> At the uh, toward the end of the 1800s, maybe possibly as a result of the industrialization of the country, this progressive ideology caught hold. And the ideology of progressivism says not only is it the role of government to protect people's rights, but also to look out for their economic well being. Mm -hmm. So we got a bunch of policies uh, that were intended to look out for people's economic well-being. And the big issue back in the late 1800s was the concentrated economic power of these new industrialists, the mm -hmm. Rockefellers, Vanderbilt, and so forth. And from the beginning, this, this progressive ideology was redistributed. I mean, the idea is looking out for people's economic well-being, it's okay to impose costs on some people, for the benefit of others. Right. Now, originally, you the know, some utilitarian sure, concept. Sure, sure. Yeah. So originally, I mean, the thought was, we can impose some costs on Rockefeller mm -hmm. for the benefit of the general public. Right. But the key point is, it justifies imposing costs on some people for the benefit of others. Yeah. So that's the ideology of progressivism. And that certainly uh, came more in full swing with the Great Depression, I think, with the safety net and redistribution. Sure, sure. Um, were, were there certain aspects, was it just the Rockefellers getting rich that kind of maybe even since this is faith in economics, kind of the sin of envy or whatever we want to call it started to kick in like, well, that's not fair. Like the, the results here aren't fair. And then we started to get into a more um, 
redistributive mindset? I would conjecture that's the case. But uh, the issues really go back to the founding of the country, that go back to the early days. Alexander Hamilton, the first Secretary of the Treasury, uh, had this idea that the government should be more actively involved in the economy, more actively promoting business and so forth. Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, thought that government ought to stay out of those things. We need to have a more limited government. So as you move toward the end of the 1800s, this idea about the role of government was really couched in terms of Jeffersonian is uh, Jeffersonianism versus Hamiltonianism. That uh, you know Hamilton's vision of government versus Jefferson's, and the and the Hamiltonian side of it was that Jeffersonian idea of limited government might have been fine back in 1800 mm-hmm. when we had a largely agricultural economy. Okay, but you move up live to the industrialized. Everybody was more isolated, doing their own thing, a lot smaller network of people, and so just leave them alone. Yeah, so that Jeffersonian idea might have been great back then, Mm. but in the industrializing United States, the Hamiltonian vision ought to take sway, and the government needs to be more involved in in the economy. Well, there'd certainly um, be more interdependence that goes on as the the firm evolves and, and people leave the farm for their comparative advantage working in industry and earning a paycheck, um, I can see that there's, there is a, a, a greater deal of interdependence that gets set up. Still, the big question mark is, is it better to handle things privately through private charities and churches and other organizations in terms of uh, helping people out, or do we go the more coercive route with having a government established that does that you know, through force, through taxation. And the, the income tax, for that matter, was 1913, correct? Correct. So, so that kind of, maybe discuss that, how, with the, what type of redistributions were going on late 1800s into that. I don't know if you're familiar with those or not. I, I'm not, but I just remember that income tax is 1913, where we might be doing a little bit more redistribution. Yeah, and the thought was with the income tax, People wanted government to be more actively involved in the economy. The federal budget was being stretched at that particular time. And the, I mean, originally the income tax was, was redistributive. I mean, when it was initially established, it was a progressive income tax. The highest marginal tax rate was 7%. Right, 7%. Pretty low compared to today's standards. But also there was a big standard deduction so that most people didn't pay income taxes. Yeah. I mean, just a little kind of interesting factoid uh, that in 1913, the first year of the income tax, the residents of the city of Chicago paid more in total income taxes than all of the residents in the former Confederate states combined. It, really? was, a, it was a tax on wow. the rich. It was explicitly redistributed. The, the, the idea was the rich are gonna pay this tax and most people didn't pay income tax. It actually wasn't until World War II that most people paid income right. tax. Yeah, and and uh, with it being that low, I think it was m- not like it is today. I know that because I've seen the hockey stick graph of getting to the 60, 70% transfer payments at this time. I think it was just that, hey, if we're going to have weapons of mass destruction and, and uh, a defense, a national defense, and other spending necessary for government of police, et cetera, et cetera, let's have the rich pay proportionately more than the poor, right? And so the, the 7% was probably enough to cover 
normal operations and was a little less redistributive at that time. Yeah, and that 7% didn't last very long yeah. because when World War One came oh, sure. along, right on the, heels of one. Uh, the, the top rate went up to 77%. Oh, it did? Yep. Oh, I and didn't then, know that. Uh, yeah. In one year? Or did it go slowly from like 7 to 20 Well, I'm to not sure how many years it took to get to 77%, but there's not very many years between 1913 and the end of World no. War one, yeah, right. right. And then after World War One in the 1920s, the top rate dropped to 25%. So, you know, it's a pretty big drop from 77 to 25. But if you're looking over the long haul, I mean, the income tax was established 7%. Uh, and then we get in the 1920s, yeah. never again did the top rate drop below 25%. So there was a pretty big ratcheting up, you know, in the early decades of the income tax. So did that top rate, I don't remember that staying there for all the way till the 70s when, when it was cut again, or was it? Oh, no, no, because okay. in the 1930s, it went oh, up again during okay. the Great Depression. Okay. Then when World War II, it went up over 90%, the right. top rate did. Right. Uh, and when Reagan was elected in 1980, the top rate was 70%. At that time, how was the political environment different in terms of, did we really have political capitalism as you um, conceive it then as we do now, or was it, was it a lot different, better, worse, what? Well, at least some historians looking at that progressive era, I mean, the idea of that progressive era regulation, uh, you know, had the Interstate Commerce Commission established that regulated railroads, mm -hmm. uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in 1890, and, you know, the thought was these are constraints that are put on the people who have concentrated wealth for the benefit of everybody else. Right. But there are at least some historians looking back on that era and saying even the progressive era regulation worked to the benefit of the economic elite, that it was a conspiracy between the political and sure. economic elite. And basically, when you look at the railroad regulation, yeah, they regulated rates, but they also uh, regulated routes and essentially, essentially set up a system where it was a lot more difficult for new entrants to come in and, and compete. So it solidified the position of those people at the top, the economic elite. It solidified their, their position, and that regulation made it more difficult for competitors to enter and displace them. Mm -hmm. All right, well, that looks like a good spot to maybe head into our first break. Um, I think when we come back, I'd like to get into some of the uh, answers of, well, what can we do about this, right? I, we've been kind of complaining about it for a long, long, long time. I mean, I was born in 71, and I think there was talk of just from my little history of the 80s and whatnot, that, that idea of corporatism and stuff that's been around for a long time. Sure, sure. So, uh, after we get done with the break, we'll come back and, and see what uh, we have for answers. All right, we'll leave it there now. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation please visit donate.123povertysex.org. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, 
Contact Levi or Russ today. So we're back from the break. And the question I have for you, uh, Dr. Holcomb, the kind of the, I think maybe it's a sort of a broad question of solutions for this kind of thing. As you were talking, I was, I was thinking about the supply side of the equation more. So that there's also a, there's very much a structure of benefits to politicians for them to get into power and then offer uh, certain things, uh, certain benefits to people who donate to them or, or that sort of thing. And so my, I guess my question about that is, so how, what do you think are the, are, are the ways that those big interests or whatever get a hold of politicians? And then how, do, how, how can we break that, that sort of uh, connection there to some extent so that we're not getting uh, corporate welfare type policies and that sort of thing? Yeah, that, that's a big question and a tough question. <laughs> and if there was we an like, easy... We like to hit them hard here on <laughs> Faith and Economics. Okay. Sure, if there was an easy answer to that, we really wouldn't be facing the problem. But, but let's, let's think about those issues. I mean, you can see there are a few people, the elite, who make public policy, right? So the, the economic and political elite have every incentive to conspire uh, to get together. Uh, the economic elite provides campaign contributions and other benefits uh, to the political elite. The political elite provides favorable regulation, tax benefits, subsidies, and, and so forth. And meanwhile, the general public, most people have no power to do anything about it. So let me consider... That, isn't it a, a classic that Trump gave to both the Hillary campaign and the conservative campaigns over time? I mean, it's yeah. just kind of a classic case of how, you know, you keep your foot in both door no matter who gets in office. Oh, sure. And if you look at corporate campaign contributions, yeah, look at corporate campaign contributions, it's the same thing. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're contributing to both parties. Yeah. Uh, so they're not really ideological in this. Right. What they're looking for is political support for their yeah. agenda. Yeah. So let me consider three ways that we might try to control political capitalism. And to my way of thinking, one of them stands out among the others. One way would be to have constitutional constraints. So we have a constitutional government. And yeah. Indeed, we do have a constitution that gives limited and enumerated powers to the federal government. But we can see that over the decades and the centuries, that's kind of breaking down. You know? mm -hmm. And the constitutional constraints on government, even though the constitution is still there, it doesn't seem like government is operating within those those constraints. We need some way to enforce the constraints. And the ideology of democracy suggests the way to enforce those constraints is through democratic elections, that the people can speak, the people vote people uh, vote their elected officials into office. So through democratic oversight, ultimately government is accountable to the people and that can constrain political capitalism. But you know, we talked in the first part of the 
of the podcast about the problems with that view. Right, that right. Most people don't have any power. They're rationally ignorant. They really don't have an incentive to get informed. They don't have an incentive to get involved. And so, you know, a lot of people don't understand, like, democracy is just majority rule, period. I, I, I've learned over the time, at least with my college students, for sure, but even adults, is that they kind of lean way too heavy on democracy. Like, the, the answer to our problems is democracy, or, you know, we have some troubled country in the Middle East, well, we get, they got to get a democracy in a place and then we'll be good. Well, that's just not true because uh, and under a simple majority rule without other systems of rules of law in place, that just can gravitate into a mess, Venezuela being a classic current case of that. Sure. And it might even be better than the current system if the majority actually did rule. Mm -hmm. But what we see yeah. is that concentrated special interests have their foot in the door. They're the people who get policies that benefit themselves. And so, so often public policy benefits a well-connected minority at the expense of the majority. So we have yeah. these democratic political institutions. A lot of times they don't even benefit the majority. Right. So what I'm suggesting is democracy probably isn't that good of a mechanism for controlling this cronyism, controlling mm -hmm. political capitalism. Yeah. The third thing I'll suggest that I think has some potential and we underestimate is checks and balances in, in the government. Mm. Okay, what <laughs> that, do you mean by that? When, I mean, when, when the founders wrote the Constitution, they had this idea of checks and balances. And we probably heard the phrase before, but I don't think we properly appreciate it. You right. know, and their idea was we create three branches of government. These three branches of government check and balance the powers of each other. That we divide the powers among the three branches of government. But we also set up a system where the interests of one branch aren't necessarily congruent with the interests of the others. Mm -hmm. So that the branches of government check and balance each other. Now, if you buy into this idea of political capitalism, it's the elite, those are the people who make public policy. And so if those are the people who make public policy, you know, the idea that the people with no power, the masses, can control the people who have power, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. you know? So the idea of checks and balances is you divide up the power among the elite, the people who actually have the power, they check and balance uh, each other. So that system of checks and balances, I think is underappreciated as a mechanism for keeping economic and political power under control. Uh, and it's also, it's worth mentioning that when the founders had this idea of checks and balances, they created these three branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial branches, but they also viewed the states as a check on the power of the federal Yeah, government. I'm glad you said that because I was going to bring up federalism as has been a little bit of my hot button lately that perhaps the argument to be made is that too much power has been usurped up to that federal level, whereas if it had remained down in the states as it was more originally that we had essentially 50 nation states, the checks and balances would already be somewhat in place. But slowly but surely over time, more and more power and control has drifted upward. That's absolutely true. I mean, you think about the federal government. Federal? It was a federation of states initially. Mm -hmm. But now you think about federal government, what we mean is the national government that controls the, the states. The big ones that control <laughs> yeah. everything. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so that's changed a lot since the founding of the country. And of course, one of the big 
factors there was the war between the states. I mean, that yeah. solidified Absolutely, the idea. Yeah. Yep. And, federal and I think government that's the pushback that I would give because I, I mean, I've been slowly thinking with all the oh, different types of civil unrest and different factions that we have in California versus Missouri versus New York. And I'm like, you know, we kind of had a good system set up originally that if we just kind of flipped this thing around and actually pushed not only the decision-making power, which to some degree they have through block grant systems and stuff, but really the purse is always controlled in Washington, D.C., and actually pushed those tax collection powers down to the states in a more meaningful way that we'd start to get, I think, some uh, robust, healthy, um, heterogeneous population of thoughts and diverse perspectives instead of trying to fight it into some one-size-fits-all across all the, the United States of America. Sure. I mean, the federal government collects up tax revenue from citizens in the states, mm-hmm. and then it gives it back to the states with strings attached. With strings, yep. Yeah. Oh, Levi, I can't hear you if you're talking. There we go. There we go. Okay. So I have a follow-up to that question, or that, that suggestion on the federalism uh, side of things. So if if we did distribute that power, you know, devolve it, I guess, uh, back to the states, I, I might say re-evolve it. <laughs> yeah, right. But so, how, but how does that? Um, how does that? How does that get around the problem of like sort of buying influence? Is it just because there's the greater possibility of of different policies winning out over different areas? Because and this is a here, here's an example that maybe we'll make a maybe it'll make it a little co- more concrete for our listeners. So back when I was a, an agricultural economics professor one of the issues that I was looking at was these labeling laws. So uh, there's a significant group of people kind of on each of the coasts that really thinks that we should have requirements that food companies put labels on food when they use GMOs uh, mm. in the food. You know, the food comes from GMO plants or whatever. And so obviously, you know, we have a very vertically integrated and food industry to a large extent. And so, you know, the companies that are, that, you know, that can the food and that sort of thing, you know, they're really concerned because a lot of these laws were going, were getting uh, put up at the state level. And so there was going, you know, there was a threat in Oregon and then there was a threat in uh, Vermont. Um, And so then as a company, you know, you would have to design a different label for those states to, you know, if you're Del Monte foods, right? You'd have to have a label for Vermont and then you have to have a different label for everybody else. Right. Mm. And then maybe Oregon's requirements would be a little bit different than that. Right. And so, and so what was interesting is that putting myself in the place of these companies, I was thinking, okay, so I, I certainly would want to oppose that. Right. But then what I really would want is, is I would want to support a compromise at the federal level that would preempt the state's ability to impose these different types of GMO laws, right? So put aside, you know, GMO labeling, but um, as, a, as an issue itself. And so what ended up happening was because there were some laws being passed up in the Northeast at the state level, the federal government came in and said, okay, we're going to pass one law that is kind of a compromise and then just preempt all state laws so that they couldn't, states couldn't pass different laws. Um, mm-hmm. So it seems, so is that, is that one of the ways that maybe federalism uh, sort of devolving this power and just not letting the federal government have power to do this kind of preemption? Is that, is that one way that, that might help this sort of thing work out? 
Well, I mean, when you think about federalism uh, as a check on the on the power of the federal government, right. it really goes both ways. That in, with checks and balances, everybody needs to be checked and balanced. So the powers of the federal government check and balance the powers of the states. The states check and balance the powers of the federal government. I mean, with the example that you cite specifically, that's a case where it appears that the government is interested in getting involved in the terms of um, private contractual agreements. Somebody wants to buy food, somebody yeah. else wants to sell food, and shouldn't they be allowed to determine the terms of, of the, the contract without the government getting involved? As a matter of public safety or public health or whatever. I, I, well, I, the nanny state, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and I, <laughs> I mean, I tend to think the market would, would sort that stuff out and maybe more so now. I think this is, to me, that's, I don't, I'm not trying to get hung up on food labels, but I, I think it's so true among so many things now with the technology that we have is that our need for government to bless meat across the nation 40 years ago was much different than it is today with the technologies that we have. And so I think these checks and balances can be so robust that the efficiency argument that some sort of standardization across all the United States of America is, is less needed and that the market, both on the consumer side and the selling side can respond efficiently to whatever is thrown at it in, in a variety of ways. Yeah, well, I mean, we the market does a great job of responding on those things. And a lot of times the, the government doesn't let that happen. Right. I mean, and, and the Pure Food and Drug Act is a good example of that. That Upton Sinclair published The Jungle in 1906, and the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed that same year in 1906 in response to apparently what had been going on for decades or, you know, at least years. People didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. And that book comes out, and right away the federal government steps in. What if it hadn't come in and, and stepped in? Well, uh, the food companies, they're looking for uh, customers. They don't want to lose their right. customers. Right. They have every incentive to guarantee their food. Mm -hmm. Then you have organizations like Consumer Reports. It wasn't around in 1906, but, I mean, those types of, you know, a private organization can say, we're inspecting, we're certifying food, but yeah. it's a voluntary thing yeah. if companies want to go. And I think way. the states would start to have their own relationships with each other that says the way we're going to label these products is going to be in this five-state region the same way or something like that. And, and it would probably just leach over to most of the states, but maybe there would be circumstances in Florida that would be different than in Montana for whatever reason. And, and well, I mean, so why do states need to mandate the way products are labeled anyway. Well, true, yes. And I'm just trying to take it one step away from the federal and push it yeah. down. And, you know, I think if we run too quickly down to the individual level, then nobody's going to want to do it. But I think we could get buy-in at alleviating people's anxiety about a free market if power was slowly starting to reverse back down to the state level. Yeah. I, think, I, mean, I think that would be a step in the right direction. You need all levels of government checking and balancing yeah. each other. I mean, yeah. That's the idea. And you'd also and, have competition among the states too, right? Like one state would find, well, we don't need to do it that way because we do it this way and it's much more efficient. And yeah. then, you know, that ends up getting copied by other states. Well, and I'll just give you an, an anecdote from my hometown of Tallahassee, Florida, thinking about cronyism and political capitalism. We had a city commissioner who set up his girlfriend with a consulting firm. <laughs> and then when people would approach the commissioner, mostly for development things, you know, I want to, I want to develop this property or whatever, the commissioner would say, you know, if you really, if you really want to do this, 
the best thing you could do is to hire this consulting firm because they're really effective at getting things mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. And so uh, money would go to the girlfriend's consulting firm. And, you know, if the money was paid to the consulting firm, then the project <laughs> would go ahead. And if it wasn't, it wouldn't. Now, thinking about checks and balances, the FBI investigated this. Uh, the FBI has now brought charges mm -hmm. against, against both of these people for corruption. Was this fairly recent? It's, it's ongoing. Oh, so really? the, wow. the charges have, have been made. Uh, the commissioner is now out of his commission seat. He was removed from his, his commission seat. And um, the FBI has made the charges. And right now they're, they're scheduled to go to court in the fall, I think in, in November. But that's an example where the federal government is checking the cronyism that's going on at, at the local level. Mm -hmm. So you have these checks and balances that go both ways. Yeah. So let, let's, uh, we're getting close to winding up here, but um, I want to spend a little bit of time on uh, Joseph uh, Schumpeter. So he's our creative destruction guy, and uh, you cite him quite a bit in terms of uh, some of the things he's said. So he was kind of famous for, uh, there's a process going on with capitalism that, you know, new firms emerge and other ones are destroyed, and this is kind of a healthy thing, this dynamic economy that comes about. And you kind of tie some of what he said. What were some of his concerns or fears with, as it relates to your political capitalism concept? Yeah, uh, most of those are in his book, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. That was published in the 1940s. And Schumpeter's a big fan of capitalism, thinks it's a great system, but nevertheless thinks that it's doomed to die out and be replaced by socialism. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things he says is the people who benefit most from the capitalist system won't stand up and defend it. Right. And and you see that, you know, when businesses, you know, businesses go to lobby Congress. Yeah, direct barriers. Sure. Do, I mean, do they ever go to Congress and say, we need freer markets? Yeah, we need no, they say, we need regulatory <laughs> protection, give us tariffs, give us subsidies, and yeah. so forth. So it's the businesses themselves right. who are undermining the free market system. Yeah. And pretty much you can count on, if you hear somebody say, I'm pro-business, yeah. That means I'm anti-free market. <laughs> right. uh, but anyway, Schumpeter was was concerned. He did. He had this evolutionary idea of capitalism. He says it's a system that's ever changing, never stagnant, never right. stable. It's always evolving. And he viewed the big threat as as capitalism evolving into socialism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you know, thinking about that in context of political capitalism. Uh, we've got our eye on the on on this socialist threat, and mm -hmm. you know Bernie Sanders right. and so forth yeah, coming, you know socialism. And meanwhile, what we don't see right under our noses, as we're so concerned about socialism, is it's the capitalists themselves, the big business people, who are undermining free market capitalism and displacing it with political capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the and, and we have to. I think to your point earlier, as far as it being constitutional and a rule of law is that we have to expect that those businesses are going to do exactly what they're doing. And so the fault is with the institution that allows lobbying or the buying of political interest and blah, 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 all of that. If, if that wasn't there, they wouldn't be spending their money on those lobbying efforts and rent seeking that doesn't pertain to their business directly, but it does because of the way we have the law set up. Yeah, and that goes back to the ideology of progressive democracy 
laying a political foundation for, for this to happen. That we've talked before the break, we talked about the ideology of progressivism, how it's inherently redistributive, benefits mm -hmm. some people at the expense of others. And the ideology of democracy, I mean, we could think of democracy in one of two ways, uh, maybe more than two ways, but one, one way is it's a way to choose who holds political power. Mm -hmm. But another way, and a way that we tend to think about it in the 21st century, is democracy is a form of government that carries out the will of the people. And how do we decide the will of the people? Through a democratic decision-making process. So you combine progressivism and this new ideology of democracy. It's okay to benefit some people at the expense of others. That's progressivism justifies that. Yeah. And when that's done by a democratic government, it's carrying out the will of the people. Mm -hmm. But think about it. Who makes public policy? It's, it's the elite. To, to put this in terms of the Occupy Wall Street language, you know, where uh, public policy is benefiting the 1% at the expense of the 99%. Now, I'm somewhat sympathetic with that complaint. Mm -hmm. But when you look at what the Occupy Wall Street people have as a solution, you know, we need more government oversight, more government <laughs> right. intervention, more government go programs. I mean, let's use the Occupy Wall Street language. What they're saying is public policy is benefiting the 1% at the expense of the 99%. So let's give the 1% even more. more power and see if this time they'll use it to benefit the 99% instead of themselves. Even though they have a track record. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's just, that's just not, not going to work. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is why I think understanding political capitalism is so important because a lot of people see the problem. I understand what the problem is, but they don't understand the cause. Right? Yeah. And so what I see this problem, government ought to do something. And, yeah. with the, and right. by arguing that, they're making the problem worse. Right, right. And it continues to get worse. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap. Wouldn't you say, uh, Dr. Russell? Was that yeah, good? sounds good. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Holcomb, for uh, enlightening us on your political capitalism. And uh, your book can be found on Amazon. So our listeners, if they want to learn more, uh, they can go to Amazon and, and, uh, and download I'll have, that. I'll have a link in the show notes for that. Yeah, we'll have it in the show notes as well. So, yeah, on behalf of the Gortney Institute, uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening. And if you're so inclined, uh, you can hit the old donate button at our Gortney Institute uh, website. And otherwise, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Thank you.